Well, good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel chapter, uh, chapter 7. And we kind of uh, ended last week. Uh, the story was uh, the Ark of the Covenant has been stolen in combat. It was uh, traveled around in the Philistine country, specifically the five major cities of the Philistines. Everywhere the Ark of the Covenant landed, uh, what also landed with it? Y'all remember? Tumors, uh, hemorrhoids, and uh, and mice. Um, yeah, so that's a blessing. So uh, and so that's kind of what was happening. So they loaded up the Ark of the Covenant. They put it back on a cart, and they said, uh, the Philistines said, good grief. If we can't get rid of this stuff, uh, we're going to die. So they put it on a cart, and they said, look, we're going to hope the cart wanders back, uh, that the cows wander back to Israel. And if it does, we'll know that God's hand was against us, and we should have never taken this ark. And lo and behold, the ark goes straight to a small Levitical priestly village, and um, they immediately uh, open it up and are struck down. And, uh, and so they, they call a bigger Levitical city, a, a, a bigger city of priests, and says, you fellas got to come get this. We can't handle this. And it, uh, so there, that's where we begin chapter 7, verse 1. It says this, and the men of Kiriath-Jerim, that is uh, the, the priestly city, uh, they came and they took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. So there's a little bit of a backstory. The ark of the covenant had been in Shiloh, the city there in Israel. And, uh, and so when the ark of the covenant was taken, History really doesn't tell us what happened to Shiloh. At Shiloh was the tabernacle, the, the pre-runner pre to what the temple was. It had the menorah, it had the altar, it had all the, all the priests go there to sacrifice. Well, after this event, we really don't hear a lot about Shiloh anymore. And when the Ark of the Covenant comes back to Israel, they don't take it back to Shiloh, even though it's only been gone for about seven or eight months. So there's some commentators who believe that Shiloh was in fact captured uh, and or destroyed or burned. And so we don't know where all of the components like the lampstand or the showbread table or the incense altar or the sacrifice altar, uh, we don't know where the tabernacle components go for a number of years. We actually don't see them show up again until about 45 years later when David becomes king takes over Jerusalem and then brings out the Ark of the Covenant and brings it back to Jerusalem. But even then, we don't have a lot of historical evidence. So there's some who believe that Shiloh was in fact destroyed or at very least substantially damaged, um, whether through uh, perception or through reality, because uh, they didn't take the Ark of the Covenant back. And so they take this guy, Eleazar, and they said, all right, you're in charge of the Ark now. So what you take care of it. And he goes, well, okay. Okay, all right, I'll do that. Wasn't looking for a job, but there it is. Verse 2. And from the day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, the time was long, for it was 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. That is to say uh, that they, a lament is not something we do in American culture, though I think we should bring it back. It is a intentional, um, a brokenheartedness. It's sadness. It's somberness. Um, uh, it's almost like a eulogy for a season uh, of American history, or in this case, Israel history. And they're so broken and sad that, that they cannot go and worship as they, as they ought. There's no one doing sacrifices there's, because there's no altar. Uh, there's no central hub of worship. And they just lament that they cannot connect with God the way they're, they're, they're told to do. Verse 3, so Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, Remove the foreign gods and the asterisk from among you and direct your hearts to, to Yahweh, the, the Lord, and serve him alone. He will deliver you, deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the asterisk and served the Lord alone. Now, let's talk about this. This is fun. Uh, the Baals, or specifically this Baal, is in the mythology the son of Dagon. Do you remember Dagon? Where's Dagon from? From the Philistines, right? Last time the Ark of the Covenant was in the Temple of Dagon, what happened to Dagon? It was knocked over. Baal is the son of Dagon, okay? And Ashtoreth, here, this is this is a female, the 
Ashtoreth is the son, the daughter of Asherah, which is another Philistine goddess. And Baal and Ashtoreth were the gods. Uh, uh, Baal was the god of, of the storms and the god of the seasons and the god of the harvest. And Ashtoreth was the god of, of fertility and life. So if you wanted to worship uh, Baal and Ashtoreth, you would go out to a big tree on a hill, and then you would have sex. And so you can imagine how uh, the religion that gets you all together in one room and says, don't do those things, in comparison to a religion that lets you go outdoors and frolic and play to your heart's desire in order for the, the ground to be fruitful, you tell me which way the Israelites broke, right? Right? Breaking bad. They were the first ones to do it. So they're there over there. And Samuel comes in and goes, hey, come out, guys. That is not how the people of God are to act. And so you need to remove these veils. You need to remove these asterisks from you. So they would go out and they would chop down these sacred trees. Or they would, in some cases, they were just like, you can think of as, as totem poles. If you can think of these very phallic-looking things. Uh, and they would cut them down. They would chop them down. And they would burn them. And so this was kind of a revival, if you will, that was happening. And Samuel said, if you want to truly follow God, you need to remove the false gods from your narrative, from your life. And, and so they do that. And he says, you need to serve the Lord and serve him alone. And verse 5. So Samuel said, gather all of Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So Mizpah is kind of a, uh, we'll talk more about that in a minute, but it is a, a sack of stones. It literally means a watchtower. And it was a place where they would routinely meet to have their version of Congress, right? Uh, the, the nation of Israel, the, the heads of Israel, the tribes would get together, and they would talk about what we're going to do as a nation, how we're going to fight our fights, how we're going to orchestrate ourselves, how we're going to rule ourselves. So Mizpah, Mizpah was kind of a place where they did that. Uh, and verse 6, they gathered to Mizpah, and they drew water, and uh, poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said, we have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Now, uh, if you were to ask me, what is this deal with the pouring out of the water? Nobody knows. Like, nobody knows. Uh, it, it's not explained here in the text, and no commentator uh, that I could read uh, understood what it was. Um, it clearly is an act of contrition. Like, maybe they're pouring out their hearts, saying, look, we, we're emptying ourselves of us. So that you, God, can fill us with your word and your will. But, but that's just a, a, a Baptist preacher sermonizing of the text. We don't know what it means, right? We don't know what it means. But in some way, it's an act of contrition. It's an act of repentance. And they're pouring it out. And they go, there you go, Lord. Uh, come help us. And there, Samuel starts the process of becoming the, the, the leader of Israel. Rewind back just a few chapters. He's a little boy that's been dropped off at the temple. He's raised by Eli, the big, fat, corrupt um, a high priest, who dies by falling over backwards and breaking his neck. And it is it, under his leadership, the Ark of the Covenant is stolen. Um, the priests are deflowering virgins when they come to worship at the temple. They are stealing food from the poor. They are stealing sacrifices from people's tables. The priesthood had become absolutely corrupt in every way you can imagine, and that's who, who raised Samuel. But we also talked about how, uh, and I believe the Bible indicates, Jesus himself in the Old Testament shows up and begins to tutor Samuel directly as Samuel is becoming this young priest there in the holy place in the night when he would lay down. Jesus came and spoke to him and tutored him along the way. So how do you get around uh, bad parenting models? Jesus, all right? So y'all just better pray for Jesus um, to, to be present in y'all's life because I'm trying my best not to wreck my three kids. And um, I got this new book I bought. It's called Seven Ways to Traumatize Your Children with Deliberateness and Intentionality. I'll, I'll bring it next time. Um, y'all will love it. But there in verse 6, Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. So there he is. He's kind of become not a priest in the traditional sense. He's now something different. He is now looked at as the person that God speaks to. And so if we want to know what God wants for our life, we need to come to Samuel. Samuel will tell us. So he's kind of like a, a new version of Moses, but not quite. He's not a king, but kind of. He's not a priest or a prophet in the traditional sense because there's no temple or tabernacle. 
but something, uh, something is up with this Samuel. He's an interesting character. Verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the lord of the Philistines, and there's five of those guys, they went up against Israel, and when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Now, uh, in our day of instantaneous uh, messaging, um, uh, you know, you can start a group message. And by the way, don't we all just love group messages? Don't they just bless your heart? Uh, and those of you who reply with a thumbs up to every single group message, <laughs> you need to repent and cut down that asterisk in your life and just move on. Just, just acknowledge it in your heart, and you don't have to do anything else. Um, there is no group messaging here. It is we send out runners. And we're going to send it to your tribe, and to your tribe, and to your tribe, and to your tribe. And we're going to meet up here on Tuesday, the third Tuesday of November. All right? So let's just say that. So over a period of, of, of a couple weeks, you prepare yourself. Some of y'all have a longer journey to make. All right? Uh, Miss Jane, she lives way away. So she's, she's going to have to start that journey like in three days. i got to pack up and start going. Oh, I'm not going to make it in time. Well, you live right next door. Right. Do what? You'll just be late. All right. So, so everyone's coming from all over the area, some from the mountains, some from the plains. Some are fishermen. Some are farmers. And they've got to get everything situated. And they start coming. So it takes a couple of weeks for everyone to get there because someone is bound to be late. Right? And uh, so the Philistines have spies all over the place. And the spy network against the church. Right? And they get back and say, hey, look, the Israelites are uh, they're gathering. All of the heads of state are gathering at Mizpah. This may be our shot. This may be our chance to get all of them while they're co-located. And we can just go ahead and, and take out the, the leadership, take out the whole country in one battle. So they all get together uh, and they got a plan. So that's what's happened. Everyone's come to Mizpah, this place, uh, to talk business. And the Philistines show up ready to fight. And the Philistines really know how to fight. And uh, verse 7, when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Because they, they, were, they packed for like four nights, six nights of dinner, and uh, they didn't bring all the weapons. Right? Because we were going to Congress. We weren't going for a fist fight. And here they show up. Verse 8, the sons of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So the wording of this is interesting to me. Um, this kind of intones that Samuel, as the kind of the centerpiece, the mouthpiece for God, he would, so we're here, right? I'll be Samuel for a second. So I'm going to tell you what God told me, all right? And after I've spoken it, some of y'all have some questions, need some clarification. So, okay, okay, time out, Chaz, I'm going to take your question back to the Lord. And he goes and he consorts with, with the Lord, whether that's, uh, in my opinion, in some cases, I think Jesus is still having a face-to-face -face relationship with Samuel, uh, or Samuel is just in prayerfulness and God speaks to him through the Spirit, either which way, however you want to you process that with your, uh, with your heart, you do that. But somehow he, he's, he's conversing with God, and so he, he's sharing those things. Well, they are struck with fear. And they come back and they, and they say, don't stop talking to the Lord because we got problems right here in River City. And we need to know exactly what's going on with this. So he goes back. Verse 9. So Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Now, what's a suckling lamb? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about a tiny little thing. Like perhaps one that was even born on the journey to Congress. You know, to, to get together and have this meeting. This is a tiny, this is a little baby lamb. Completely innocent, right? So he takes this suckling lamb, and he offers it to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and look what happened. What does the Bible say? The Lord answered, right? The Lord heard, the Lord answered. So how that happened, we don't know, either through the Spirit speaking to Samuel or through this face-to-face -face consort that maybe could, could be happening between him and Samuel. And now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with the great thunder on that day against the Philistine and confused them so that they were routed before the Lord. Let's go back to our talk, talk about Baal. What is one of the features of, the, of Baal? What is he king over? What is he the ruler of? Thunderstorms and the weather, right? 
And so they draw up. And God, Yahweh, Israel's God, does what? He's ruling the weather. So what are the Philistines thinking? They're confused. Oh, uh-oh. Their God may be bigger than our God. And everybody else who lived over in, uh, in the old Philistine towns, they're like, hey, y'all don't even remember. Remember those hemorrhoids? They were bad. We need to get out of here. So there's this huge storm, and, and there's this massive confusion that God sends on the Philistines, and they take off running. And uh, the Israelites are like, you hear from God say that? Let's go catch them. And that's what they did. Verse 10, uh, or verse 11. The men of Israel went out of Mitzvah, and they pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as Bethkar. You really don't know where that is, but for the, for the context of the local population, they would have been like, oh, okay, so from like Kilahatchee to Morton, gotcha. So they took off running and chasing them and, and killing them along the way. Verse 12, then Samuel took a stone, and he set it between Mizpah and Shin, and he named it Ebenezer, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. Uh, that, that's exactly what Ebenezer means. So if you've ever been out in the country and you pass a little Ebenezer Missionary Baptist Church, now you know what it means. The, the, the Lord has met us. He's helped us this far. Verse 13, for the Philistines were subdued and they did not come any more within the border of Israel and the hand of and the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Can we parse those two words, those two sentences apart? First off, uh, it says here, they didn't come within the border of Israel anymore. Well, that's not historically accurate, even according to the text, right? Because later, uh, what's going to happen? I mean, Samuel is still in charge. Saul goes to battle, and a guy named Goliath takes the battlefield. That was in Israel. So what, what the text is trying to intone was that that particular event from Mizpah and the thunderstorm and the routing of the Philistines scared them so bad it kept them off balance. There were still skirmishes all along the way, but there was not really one particular um, uh firm up battle that, that really that the Israelites could say oh, they came in and they, they took us out during this particular season. Period. End of statement. Next sentence. Um, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So there were still battles. There were still conflicts. There were still issues. But as long as Samuel was there, Philistines really were like, mm, we heard. he kind of has a face-to-face -face relationship with God and they have whooped us a bunch of different ways, so we're just going to hold back until Samuel's not there anymore. Nevertheless, uh, it says here in verse 14, the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron even to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. So there was peace between Israel and the Amorites, all right? So uh, the Amorites are further north, so what this is telling us is that uh, it got so real with Samuel and Israel. God was doing some pretty incredible things. This revival was taking place that the borders began to extend yet again from north to south. God was with his people. All right, verse 15. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he used to go annually on a circuit to three places. This is very interesting. To Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all of these places. So I got to looking at these three places. Like, what... These aren't places that I'm really completely familiar with. Uh, Bethel was a place where, um, I wrote it down, in Genesis chapter 28, uh, Jacob and Esau. You remember that story? Jacob and Esau, the bag? Um, Jacob is on the run for his life, and he falls down in fatigue, and he actually takes a stone and props it up under his head for a pillow. Do you remember that story? Don't say flannel graph, vacation Bible school, but I did, right? And, and in a vision that night, he saw uh, what we sometimes call Jacob's ladder and angels walking up and down on the ladder. And he saw God at the top of the ladder and the earth, the ladder extended all the way to the earth. Do you remember that story? Well, when he woke up that morning, he said, God lives here. This is where God lives, which was what Bethel means, the house of God. So he takes the stone that he had laid his head on, he set it up tall ways, and he anointed it. And from that point forward, that place was called the house of God, Bethel. So there is now a stone monument where Jacob met God. Are you with me? And then Gilgal. Remember, remember what Gilgal is? I went to East Rankin Academy early on in my youth and a uh, uh, fish girl because it was by the it, it Jericho River. Fish girl. That's what Gilgal meant. Gil, Gil, whatever. 
Um, when Israel came out of the 40 years of wandering, they crossed over the, the Jordan River. And remember the Jordan River parted. Y'all remember that? Just like what? Just like the Red Sea. Uh, Joshua ordered two different things. Number one, he ordered a man from each tribe to pick up a large stone and put it in the middle of the river and stack 12 stones on top of each other so that when in the future the river ever ran dry, they could look out into the middle of the river and go, you know, we used to walk out there. Or when the river was high, you only see two or three stones, you could take your son or your daughter out and go, hey, there's actually nine more stones under there. God walked us on dry land right there. That's exactly, so it was a place of remembrance. Well, the 12 stones in the middle of the river, but Joshua also had 12 stones set up at Gilgal on the promised land side of the river, 12 stones. So they could come back and they could stand at these 12 stones and look at those 12 stones and go, whoo, ain't God good. Look at God go. And so Gilgal, and we had Bethel. But then he also went to a place called Mizpah. Now this was, I had, I had to do some reading on this because I've been a Bible student for a long time and I still didn't know what this was. Go back to Jacob. Jacob marries uh, Laban's daughter. You remember he wanted um, uh, Rachel, the pretty one. He's like, hey, Laban, look, I'm going to work for you for seven years. Let me marry your pretty daughter, and uh, we'll call it even Stephen. And so on the night of the wedding, uh, read your text. The Bible says, and I'm not making it up, uh, Laban got him lit, right? And he said, drink some of this fire water. Good for your wedding, right? It's going to be good for your soul. And, uh, and then he sends an intoxicated uh, Jacob into uh, his wedding night, and he wakes up, and it's not beautiful young Rachel that he wakes up next to, but it's, in fact, Leah, who, you're, if you read the King James, says that she, she was, uh, her eyes were hard. That's a bad translation, okay? means that she was hard on your eyes, right? <laughs> right? Uh, the kids have a chance. U G L Y. She ain't got no alibi. <laughs> okay. uh, so that is, that is. And he wakes up. He goes, "Woo! This is not what I work for, Laban." And uh, and, the guy, and he says, "Well, look, it's not in our tradition to marry off the younger daughter." He's like, "Well, you could have brought that up seven years ago, brother." Uh, he says, "Look, agree to seven more years, and you can marry uh, marry my other daughter." So he probably works for about two or three months, and they get married, and then he has to work another seven years. Well, after that period of time is up, he and his father-in-law, as happens with most young marriages, there is some conflict at some point between the father-in-law and the son-in-law at some point, and they're like, we can't, look, we don't have to move, all right? I love you, but I got to go somewhere else. So Jacob sneaks off with the two daughters, all of, all of Laban's grandsons and granddaughters, and a bunch of herds that now belong to Jacob and his family. And they wake up the next morning and go, whoa, where is everybody? Laban rises up a small little army, and they meet at a place, and they have this argument, and then they have a reconciling or reconciliation. They go, hey, look, you should have told me you were leaving. We should have talked about this. But we're going to make a deal. You go your way. I'll go back home, and we're going to put a marker right here. And you and I are going to promise that if we ever cross this place, it will not be in anger. You won't come to attack me, and I won't come past this spot and attack you. From here, and that place was called Mizpah. Okay? So there are three places. All of them have substantive stone monuments. All of them cause Israel to walk up and go, what happened here? And they would leave a little plaque on the side and go, okay, gotcha. This is what Samuel was doing. He was going to specific places where God had met his people and had brought peace or, or, or a blessing in some way, okay? So even the way Samuel is traveling, he's calling attention to the greatness of the God of old, saying the God of the old is the God of the now, all right? Now, that's what, that's what those three things are. Uh, Bethel is from Genesis 28, those of you who are writing this down. Gilgal is in Joshua 4, and Mizpah, you can find that story 
in Genesis 31. So Israel judged, uh, or Samuel judged Israel in verse 15 all the days of his life, and he used to go annually on circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mitzvah, and he judged Israel in all of these places. So he set up an orderly fashion to govern. And then he would return to Ramah. Now, this is where Samuel's mama was from. Y'all remember? Hannah comes. She's barren. She comes to Eli, the big fat corrupt priest, and she's praying. And he accuses her of being drunk. And he says, I'm not drunk. I'm just, my heart's so broken that, that the prayers are just coming out of my face, even when I don't mean to. And uh, he says, go, have a baby. And, uh, and she goes, woohoo! So she goes home, has a baby, and she fulfills her promise to God when she says, I will bring this child back. And so Hannah and her family are from Ramah. Okay? So this is his original place. So when Shiloh went down, when Eli died, and his two boys were killed in battle, and the Ark of the Covenant was stolen, where did Samuel go? Well, he went He went home to see his mama, to which his mama went, that's what I'm talking about. Come on home, you can live right next door. And so he did. Verse 17, he returned to Ramah, for his house was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. All right. So what has Samuel now become? He has become the, essentially the functional high priest of the nation. The ark is over in another town. He set up an altar here. He goes on a circuit to judge, but he says, you can still meet God. Now, why do you think he put it at his house? Because he has a face-to-face -face relationship with God. That's why I think that, that Jesus is still meeting with him. He's like, I don't have to go to Shiloh. I don't have to go to the tabernacle. I don't go to other places. God comes to see me the same way God came to see Moses. And so he built an altar there and says, if you want to come get right with God, here, come, come to Ramah, and we'll do that. So that's where he built the altar. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Now it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah or Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba. That's about 50 or 60 miles away, but 50 or 60 miles away, like in the Smoky Mountains, 50 or 60 miles away. Okay? So lots of hills and roads and curves. You ain't getting there in an hour drive. Okay? So it's a distant place. He's kind of, kind of spreading out his boys to make sure that they do the right thing and make sure that Israel's taken care of. And verse 3. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Doggone it. What had Eli, Eli's boys done? Same thing. Samuel was a good and godly man. What did his boys do? They corrupted themselves. Now, I say this because I think it's important. I, I'm a father of three, two boys and a girl. Y'all got kids, don't you? Um... Being a good and godly parent does not guarantee good and godly children, right? Praise God if you got them. Thank the Lord if they're righteous and they follow Jesus. Do not feel overly burdened. Don't shame yourself every morning because some of your kids have gone crazy, right? And I say that with a lot of grace in that. Uh, we'll pray that, that God keeps, keeps calling them and, and brings them home. But even Samuel, the great the great prophet, the one that I, I believe had a face-to-face -face conversation with Jesus on the regular. And his kids still didn't get it. His kids still didn't get it. So, all right, so those of you who are shaming yourself because your kids are going crazy, just uh, step back, pray, pray for God's help. Um, verse 4, And the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. So they come to his house, right? This is kind of like an old person intervention. This is like when you go to your grandma's house and say, hey, we're going to put you in a home. We want you to be okay with it. <laughs> right? Because look at the next verse. This is so great. Verse 5. And they said to him, behold, you have grown old. Well, thank you. Right? I've done all this work. I have, I have been walking this circuit. I have been helping y'all find Jesus all this time. And y'all show up and just tell me I'm old. Put me out of pasture. All right? And they said, your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all of the nations. And if there were sound effects here, I would add boom, boom, boom. All right? Something bad's fixing to happen. 
Take your Bibles, go back just a few pages to Judges 21. Judges 21. At the end of the book of Judges, we have that horrible, horrible story. You can read about it in Judges 19 and 20 and 21, where a, a Bethlehemite goes and buys a underage sex slave. She runs away. He goes to capture her again. He stays overnight in a city of the, of the tribe of Benjamin. So there's a, it's a Benjamite city. And in the night, a group of men come and pound on the door and say, send us out that guy that's staying here. We're going to uh, gang rape him and have our way with him. And uh, the owner of the home says, mm, nope. However, we'll send out this underage sex slave. You can, you can gang rape her instead. Judges 19, not making it up, it's in there. And so they rape her all night and she dies from her wound. And in the morning, the guy opens up the door, he looks at the ground, there is this uh, sex slave that he has purchased, and he says to her, get up, let's go home. But she's already dead. He throws her on the back of a mule, carries her home, cuts her into 12 pieces, and sends all the pieces out to the tribes of Israel and goes, look at how bad y'all have been. <laughs> Judges chapter 19, 20 and 21. The last verse of chapter 21, verse 25, says this. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And here we are now in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and something very, very important is about to happen. We're fixing to transition into a monarchy. Whereas before, God was our ruler, God fought our battles, God did our bidding, and he took care of us. Now the people say, nope, we want something different. Verse, uh, verse 5, Behold, you have grown old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Appoint us a king to judge us like all of the other nations. But the thing which was, uh, this thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel. And when they said, Give us a king to judge us, Samuel prayed to the Lord. So he goes back to God in prayer. I love this. This is, this is a fantastic character trait of Samuel. Runs into a problem, talks to Jesus. Right? So that should be a good model for us too, right? Verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Uh, that's them some strong words. They said, look, they have, Samuel, they're, mm -mm, they're not against you, brother. They're against me. Verse, uh, verse 8, like all the deeds which they have done since the days that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that day they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words to the, of the Lord to the people who had asked of him the king. And he said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and he will place them for himself in chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. Where did he just tell them? Some of your, your boys are going to die in war. You better get ready. You better get ready. You think you want a king, but the king's going to want to have an army. You ask for it, and you're going to get it. Verse 13. He will take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, and he will take the best of your vineyards, and he will take the best of your olive groves, and he will give them to who? His servants. He's going to tax you, and then he's going to create a whole new level of special interest aristocrats. And uh, you grew it. It's your stuff. He's going to take it and give it to his people to increase his status. You think that's a great idea? Yeah, well, they did. Crazy people. <laughs> Verse 15, he will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyard and give it to his officers and his servants. I find that number incredibly interesting. What's a tenth? It's a tithe. What did he just say? He says, the king will take his, his tithe, and he'll take as much as I take. Right? Verse 16, he will take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys, and he'll use them for his work. Mm, I don't know if I like that. He will take a tenth of your flock, and you yourselves will become his servants. And then you will cry out in that day because your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. 
Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be. And here's the, here's the kicker. We want to be like all the other nations. We have to be very careful when we say to God, we want more than what you want for us. Does that make sense? We, we want more than what you want for us. Uh, I have grown up. I was born in 1980, okay? I have grown up in the culture of absolute profiteering. I have not known a season in American history true poverty. Not in the way some of our church members, maybe some of you yourself have grown up. I've never seen it. I've never seen it. And, and here he's saying, uh, look, we want to be like all the other nations. The Israelites looked around and said, well, we see they have, you know, nicer hospitals and parks and community centers and they have nice temples and, and they have a palace. Have you seen the Philistines palace? It's amazing. I took the $5 tour. Breathtaking. We would like that too. We would like a king. And, and Samuel said, you don't know what you're asking for, but you're fixing to get it. But they said, we want to be like all the other nations. They idealized other nations. Um, he says, we want our king that he may judge over us and go out before us and fight our battles. How did this story begin a few minutes ago? Do y'all remember? They went up to Mizba to pray. They didn't bring their weapons to fight. And they said to the, the man of God, Samuel, save us. And what did God do? Yeah, how? Through a thunderstorm. Yeah. All right, flash flood. Put them to flight. And they, in, in almost the second breath, yeah, but we'd like a king to go out and do our battle for us. I, I'm, I, don't, know you, I don't know about you, but uh, if I'm going to pick one or the other, I'm picking the first one, right? I've been <coughs> in a bad thunderstorm before. It ain't no fun. It'd be just kind of cool if that was, your, that was the, the protection plan that the Lord put together, right? So there it is. Uh, after Samuel had heard all these words of the people, he repeated them into the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice, appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. That's probably being very sweet. What did he say? Get out of here. Hard to look at your stupid son. Uh, God told Samuel to listen to their voice and appoint a king. And he said, I want all y'all to shut up and go home. I got to think about this. <laughs> I got some praying to do. Verse 9, chapter 9. Now there was a man, we're going to move quickly through this. There was a man of, of Benjamin. Whoa! What happened? Where did that gang rape and all the crime and sodomy happen? I was the tribe of Benjamin. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is weird. Because after that happened, the nation of Israel rose up against and fought that particular tribe. Eleven tribes on one. They all went to fight them. And they took the men of Benjamin from 25,000 down to 600. And then they made everybody promise in the room, and none of y'all can have your daughters marry a Benjamite boy. <coughs> So what's going to happen to the Benjamites pretty quick? They're going to die out. So they went, they went and kidnapped some girls. This is, isn't this so great? This is the Bible. They went and kidnapped 600 women and said, uh, you're not going to be married to this guy. He's ugly. Yeah, but we killed everybody else, so you got to marry um, that's how That's how that happened. And here is, here is a Benjamite, curious beginning, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorah, the son of Aphiah, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. Any of y'all having children soon? Those are some really quality names you can pick from right there. Verse 2, he had a son whose name was Saul. He was choice. He was a handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. For his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. If you were going to make a movie about a good-looking king, ripped abs, broad shoulders, tall, head tall, Everybody else, that's who you pick. Like I, I, I pick you. you. He just looked like a king. He looked like a king, and that's going to be pretty telling here in a minute. Now the sons of, uh, the, now the donkeys of Kish. That's, that's funny. We started off talking about the sons of Kish. Now we're talking about the donkeys of Kish. We'll we'll see how they'll interact here in a minute. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost, and so Kish said to his son Saul, "Take now with one of you, one of your servants." And arise and go search for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of uh, 
that person, or Shalisha, I don't know, is that, a, is that a name? But they did not find them. And then they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there either. And he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them there. And when they came to the land of Zub, Saul said to his servant, who was with him, Come and let's return, or else my father will stop being concerned about the donkeys, and will come anxious for us. And he said, Behold, um, or, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah. And he said to him, that is the servant, I believe, saying to uh, Saul, Behold, now there is a man of God in this city, and the man is held in high honor, and all that he says surely comes true. Who is that going to be? Probably going to be Samuel, right? That's what it was said about Samuel in, in chapter 2. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey and on which we have, we have set out. And Saul said to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the, uh, the, this man? For the bread is gone from our sack, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? This is a, a free advertisement for your dollar. It's October. We, we uh, celebrate Pastor Appreciation Month. So uh, y'all just take that for whatever it is. Apply that however you want to. Uh, what, what are we going to give as a gift to the man of God? A quarter. A quarter? Exactly. Yeah, we prayed about that. Lord, we had a dollar, but now we're going to give you a quarter. That's biblical. Yeah, yeah, don't spend it all in one place. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, come and let us go to the seer. For he who is called a prophet now was formerly called a seer. When you hear the word seer, what's the first thing that pops out to you? What word? Someone who sees something. <laughs> killing me. Seer. S-E-E-R. Seer. So they're going to go see Samuel, who's a seer. What does he see a lot of? A lot of Jesus, I think. And Jesus tells him. Jesus sees it all. Verse 10, And Saul said to his servant, um, Well said. Come, let's go to the city where the man is. And as they went up the slope of the city, they found, a young, found young women coming out to draw water. So it's likely in the morning. And they said to them, is the seer here? And they answered and said, yes, he is. Uh, he is ahead of you. Hurry now, for he has come into the city today. For the people have sacrificed on a, uh, will have a sacrifice on the high place today. And as soon as you enter the city, you will find them before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until the seer comes, but because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up, for you will find them at once. So these women coming out to get water in the morning were probably serving at this banquet. That's why they have all this te technical detail, right? They know, well, the, the, we set the tables up, dinner on the ground. Yeah, remember that? And it's up at the high place because that's where you worship God is in the high places. And so they're going to have a dinner on the ground. And uh, the seer, the prophet, um, is going to be there, and he's going to bless the food. And, uh, and, uh, and then that's what we're going to do. So verse 14, they went up to the city, and as they came into the city, behold, Samuel was coming out towards them to go into the high place. Now, parenthetical story begins here in verse 15. Now a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this, this, this story, to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. And you shall anoint him to be the prince over my people Israel. And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. And when Samuel saw Saul, that's a fun tongue twister. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. Now let's pause here. Samuel's an older gentleman. He's put in a lot of hard work. He has served Israel well since he was a child. God has been speaking to him face to face, giving him insight, telling him what's going to happen, helping him help other people. You follow me? The people come to him and say, we want a king. And he says, get out of my face. And he goes home, probably to Ramah, and he prays, and he prays, and he prays. And he wakes up one morning, and God says, I've picked a king. This is what he looks like. He's head and shoulders taller and better looking than everybody in the room. We know the rest of the story of Saul. Try to forget that for a minute. <coughs> Samuel is an older man who has just been told 
his own sons are corrupt and ill-suited for leadership, just like his old uncles, Hopni and Phineas, Eli's boys. He is most likely a broken-hearted father. And God shows him this beautiful man and says, he will be king. What do you think Samuel thought of Saul? I hate him already. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, what, what, do you, what do you think in reality? Uh, I'm going to tell you what I think. I think he saw his surrogate son. We, we know in later events, when we'll read this in a couple of weeks, when Saul finally got in trouble and God took the kingdom from him, Samuel went home and he died of depression. That reaction probably tells me he thought, Samuel thought, even though God didn't ordain this king purposely, we're giving it permissively, right? I think he must have seen a lot of potential in Samuel or in Saul. Because he's tall, he's good looking, he's got a lot of he's got a lot of potential. And I think he fell in love with this kid. And I think he thought, maybe at least initially, my opinion. Like this is this is kind of like the son that's going to replace my other son, right? He's going to be to me like I was to who? Eli. I'm going to be the replacement son that wins. All right, take that for what it's worth. Verse 17, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said, Behold the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me where the seer's house is. <laughs> he didn't have a clue. Uh, Samuel answered Saul and said, Well, I'm the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. Well, hey, how about that? You get to sit next to the preacher. Uh, maybe you'll get a bigger piece of chicken. I don't know. Uh, turns out he will. And in the morning I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is on your mind. So, hey, come have dinner with me, and then tomorrow when you get to leave, everything that's on your heart to know, I'll tell you. Don't worry about it. Just come have dinner with me. As for the donkeys which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's household? And Saul replied, What? What are you talking about? I'm a Benjamite. You know those people that, you know, like gang raped that girl? And then, like, y'all killed all of us? And, like, I'm kind of the lowest ranking member of my family. And my family is the lowest ranking member of the Benjamites. And. Yeah, this is not good. You don't know who you're talking to. Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest tribe of, it, uh, of Israel and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Uh, Benjamin? When, why then do you speak to me in this way? And Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall, and he gave them a place at the head of those who were invited, who were about 30 men. So this is kind of like another tribal meeting. And we bring in Samuel, a Benjamite, a a, practically a dirty homeless person for the last three days he smells like dirt and gross right here you sit at the front okay and put him at the head yeah. and said well you said the blessing for us yeah exactly tall good looking homeless guy he's a tall good looking maybe he has that rugged look yeah. about him yeah. right that bad boy right? he got a leather jacket on I don't know Samuel took to the, said to the cook, bring the portion that I gave you concerning which I said, set it aside. As, as an aside story, uh, I was in Uganda a number of years ago, and um, uh, we were having a meal. It was me and my translator and two pastors in the area, and uh, they kept calling me doctor because, well, they call everybody that has an education, and it's white in Uganda. They call him doctor. So Dr. Clark, Dr. Clark, and uh, they said, we have, we, have, we have this, we have set aside the best piece of meat for you. And um, uh, the tradition was you have to uh, dig out the kidney or the heart or something, or some little piece of organ inside, of, like right up in that piece of meat, and then you eat it in front of everybody because that's the honored piece of meat. Now, I will tell you, I, mm, I'm kind of a picky eater anyway. And I was like, Lord, I'm going to bless this. You know, I'll put it down if you'll keep it down. And, uh, <laughs> but I couldn't put it down. I was like, and I turned to my translator, who was a quadriplegic, who, who had the hand 
pedal 23 miles to come be my translator. His name was Peter. He was an incredible guy. And I, I, it was a smooth move. I said, Peter, you're amazing. I would like you to be this honor of having this Peter. And, uh, and he popped that thing out and put it in his mouth. It was great for me and for him. Um, but that's what they did. They came in and dirty, homeless, rugged-looking saw. And, uh, and so he said, here, have the best portion. And I, I, and I gave it to him concerning which I said. And the king took up uh, the leg with which uh, what it was on it. And set it before the saw. He had a big old hunk. Of, you, you don't get a rack of ribs. You get like the whole side of beef. Right? And all the other 30 guys are like, man, I wanted that piece. Right? You know how some of y'all whiners are. Anyway, um, so he said, Here, here's what's been reserved. Set it before you and eat because it has been kept for you until the appointed time since I have, said in, uh, since I have invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof. So he stayed the night with him. So they, they went up on top of the roof, which they kind of air-conditioned up there as much as possible in the ancient Near East. And so they, they kind of sat around and talked throughout the night, kind of got to know, tell me about yourself, Saul, what, Benjamin, it's an exotic location. So tell me, how are things? And so they sat up and talked uh, in the evening. And then they arose early, and at daybreak, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, saying, Get up, and I may send you away. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out of the street, and they were going to the edge of the city, and Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on, but, the, but you remain standing now that I may proclaim the word of God to you. And we're going to read just a few verses, and then we'll, we'll pick this back up next week. Then Samuel took the flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? We'll pause there. Here we have this story of this ascendancy of the nobodies that, that Samuel didn't want. He wanted God to be king over his people. But they wanted a, a king, and God's going to give it to him. Samuel anoints this man, Saul. And next week we'll pick, on, uh, pick up on how illustrious this guy ascends to the throne. It's as awkward there as this meal was here. Uh, Samuel uh, is over there scratching his head going, this guy? Right? So, uh, any questions or comments?